Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont. If you're in our area, we wanted to let you know that we have community groups starting back again in September. So check out that and other ministries we have going on here at newkingchurch.com. Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 32. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison." Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him go, sorry, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, as you already have taken that cue. Um, You're probably all having listened to that wonderful passage, wondering how on earth are we going to hear one sermon on all of that? Um, I'm wondering the same thing, but uh, by the grace of God, that's how, you know. Uh, So welcome, everyone. You know, my name is Aaron Clark. If you don't know me, you should. I'm pretty famous around here. Um, So good morning to you. Do I have any good mornings back? Good morning. morning. Oh, good. Good. You're all awake. They they weren't awake in the first service, so glad to see you guys are awake. Um, So in case you haven't been with us, we've been in a series on Matthew called Kingdom Come. We've been exploring Christ's kingdom. And uh, right now we're on Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, uh, which we're calling the King's Sermon for this series. And, uh, and we really could have called this particular series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the King's Sermon on Righteousness in the Kingdom, uh, because really he's talking about what the righteous life looks like in the Kingdom of God. And in this portion, and in next week's portion, we're going to um, see Jesus talking about the place of the law. What is the place of the law in the kingdom of God? And therefore, what is the place of righteousness in the kingdom of God? Uh, So the first question maybe you might be thinking, I'm just guessing here, uh, based off of the passage we we read, what does he mean by the law, the law and the prophets? Uh, When Jesus uses the word law, he's referring specifically to the first five books of the Hebrew Old Testament, also known as the Pentateuch, which is actually one huge, massive book written by Moses. And, uh, and, and when he talks about the, pro- the law and the prophets, 
That is referring to the entirety of the Christian Old Testament or the Hebrew Old Testament. So why does Jesus talk about this, about the law? Uh, You see, he kind of needs to talk about this because there's really a shift of leadership going on here, right? There's a shift in the kingdom. What we had was the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, and Jesus is coming in, dismantling that kingdom and establishing his own kingdom, the kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus. And uh, what can you expect when there's a change of hands, right? When when there's a kingdom change, Um, what can you expect from that? Something you might expect is a change of law, a change of precepts. And what a, when a kingdom takes over another kingdom, you get new laws. Now, in Jesus' establishment of his kingdom, there is a change in reference to the law, as we've just explained what the law is, but there's also not. So it's, it's interesting. There's a tension here, which is kind of hard to explain. So may the grace of the Lord help me to explain that. Uh, but Jesus shows us this tension of the law And he gives us a picture of the law's place in the kingdom. And uh, we'll see that the law's place in the kingdom is very significant. So let's invite the Father to be our teacher today. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for establishing over us a better king than Satan, Jesus the greatest of them all, uh, the most righteous, the most beloved. And thank you that he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law and that by him we can be made righteous. Father, thank you for all these gifts. We can't even ask for more, but we're going to because you're so gracious. And I pray that you would just speak to us by your spirit today. Teach us your word. Be our teacher. You say that you sent your spirit to teach us all things. So be our teacher today. Open my mouth to speak your words plainly and clearly. And I pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the first thing I want to show you is that in the kingdom, righteousness has not been revoked. All right? And another way to say that, the law has not been displaced. So look at verse 17 in your Bibles. Verse 17 says this, Jesus' words, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. I came to fulfill them. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, is essentially the bedrock of his kingdom. It's what gives credibility to his kingdom reign. So you see, the the law of God, it shows us the righteousness of God, which Christ fulfills. and, And this is what gives credibility to his reign He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law through his righteous life, passing the test of the law, fulfilling all righteousness, as Matthew 3.15 says. He fulfilled the law of sacrifices and priests by becoming the perfect sacrifice and by becoming the perfect priest. And he fulfilled the prophecies of the prophets perfectly. A lot of Ps there, I know. Uh, but it's alliteration. Now, Jesus' fulfilling of the law showed not only his credibility as the Messiah King, it showed that his righteousness was the same righteousness as God's. Perfect, holy, unattainable. Only, Only God could obtain that righteousness. The Apostle Paul, he said it like this, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And he said this in Romans 10, 14. And you get a a sense more of the idea of what Paul's saying there when he says is the end of the law, because doesn't that sound kind of contradictory to what Jesus said, 
right? Is Paul contradicting Jesus? First, we hear Jesus say, I did not come to abolish the law. Here's Paul saying, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Well, you get more of a sense of what he's communicating when you realize that that word for end is the Greek word telos. Now you get it, right? It all makes sense. So, <laughs> so that, that same word telos is where we get our word telescope. Uh, and it's not simply end uh, as in termination, uh, the Greek word telos is a little bit more than that. It refers to the purpose or the aim or the fulfillment. So the end of the law, that is its fulfillment, its completion, its, its purpose, its satisfaction, is in where? Christ. I guess no one was listening. Christ is the end, the purpose of the law, the fulfillment of the law. He fulfills it. Make sense? So Christ's fulfilling of the righteousness of the law is the basis of his kingdom reign. It's what lends credibility to his reign. Now, the question arises, since Christ fulfills the law, since he achieves its aim and completes it, does he then abolish it? Does he, is there no need for it anymore? Uh, well, you, you should know the answer to that question if you were listening to the first sentence. Jesus says clearly, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And that might be a little peculiar to some of you. Why is Jesus saying that? That doesn't go with my theology. Well, maybe we need to change some things. So we learn from these words that in the kingdom, righteousness is still righteousness, and Christ did not end the law. Just because Christ fulfilled the law does not mean that the law is no longer true or right or good or holy. So now, if you look at modern-day Christians, we've got a few modern-day Christians in here, right? If you look at modern-day Christians, you might think that Jesus really did abolish the law, right? There's the spirit of antinomianism in the church today, and we all know what antinomianism is, <laughs> right? I can't even see it, right? Uh, antinomianism is simply, right, it's anti and namas. It clears it up, right? So uh, anti, I think we all know what that means. Well, namas uh, is the word, Greek word for law, right? It's the same word that we use for economy or astronomy or taxonomy, not to be confused with taxidermy. Uh, it means law. So an antinomian heretic, uh, for example, would be someone who is against the law, anti-law. And unfortunately, uh, this heresy is widespread today in the church, and really it plagues the culture of our country. Now, um, <clears throat> There are cuter ways that this heresy presents itself. For example, most Christians don't bother with the Old Testament. Most have never even read it. When you ask a Christian, what's your favorite book of the Old Testament? Say, what's that? Uh, they say things like, I just don't think it's applicable to me. Right? And when you quote the Old Testament to prove something, have you, have you ever had this happen to you? You quote the Old Testament and someone's like, oh, where is that? And they say, oh, that's the Old Testament. That's not for us. Uh, you see, they disparage it. And besides that, they regret it and they apologize for it. Now, that, you know, and that apology that we make for it, looking at the law and feeling like I have to apologize to someone for it, right? I, I, I'm not fully delighted in what I just read to you about the Old Testament law. Uh, and I'm going to apologize for it. Well, that attitude is not the attitude that King David, for example, had toward the law. King David said these words, Oh, how I love your law. And he said, I delight in your commandments because I love them. And those two verses are verses 97 and 47, in the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And in it, David is just ranting about how much he loves God's laws and precepts and his word. He's just saying it in a bunch of different ways, like a thousand times. Um, 
So I guess we're, it's a good thing to like the law. Um, but have you ever delighted in the law? Ask yourself this. Have you ever delighted in Leviticus? Huh? Most of us probably have not even read Leviticus. You're like, what's that? Is that in the Bible? <laughs> so Leviticus, I mean, how can you delight in a bunch of laws, right? It's the listing of all the laws. I've been going through the Pentateuch, actually, through Exodus, Leviticus, and uh, there's a bunch of stuff in there that maybe we wouldn't think is delightful, right? Um, the listing of the laws, sacrifices, um, the tabernacle being explained, how it's built. You're going to build this thing out of bronze, and you're going to make this thing out of acacia wood, and then there's going to be this goat's hair that you're going to make this curtain out of. Um, now, how can you delight in all that? Well, here's the truth, okay? Uh, you might think, oh, that's all funny stuff. But the truth is that the problem isn't with those passages. It's not with the book of the law. It's with our hearts. It's with our cold, dead, joyless hearts and with our lack of understanding of the context of these things in God's unfolding plan of redemption. So you don't find God's righteousness and holiness delightful is kind of a question that I think, you know, if you don't love what you're reading in the Old Testament, because it's all about his righteousness and his holiness up against the unrighteousness and the unholiness of humanity. Um, we aren't in, in awe of seeing God's fierce wrath and justice against evil. We think, oh, that's not the God I serve. Uh, that's the God who hates evil and loves justice. That's a delightful thing. Uh, we don't love the blood-soaked sacrifices of bulls and rams and all these things, but these sacrifices, they prefigure Christ. You cannot understand the sacrifice of Christ. Why is this a thing without understanding the sacrificial system in the Old Testament? And we also don't enjoy the consecration of the priest and the people, hearing how they were sprinkled with blood or washed with water. Uh, but those are prefigurings of the consecration that Christ had as our high priest and that we have as his people, consecrated with the sacrificial blood of Christ, washed in the water and anointed with the holy oil, that is, the Holy Spirit. So when you actually get down to it, the Old Testament is pretty dang exciting, <laughs> right? Um, now, we should feel the, with David, along with him, the weight of these things. But again, you see the problem isn't with the law, it's with you, all you people. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's with you and me. Uh, we have this same problem of our hearts being hard against the holiness, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, and His plan of redemption. So may the Lord soften our hearts to His Word, to love and delight in His Word, like King David. Thanks, sister. Now, <clears throat> uh, now antinomianism, going back to that, it goes further than not simply delighting in God's law. It, it invalidates God's law. It says that the law is no longer functioning. It's no longer a thing. And I find that hard to believe with what Jesus just said, that he did not abolish the law. Uh, but also you have to understand that the law must still function because it does some pretty important things. I mean, we just talked about a lot of that. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of beating a dead horse here. Um, poor horse. Well, it's already dead. But it's, it's also still useful for teaching us a lot of things, right? It shows us that we are sinful, that we actually have a problem. We are sinners in the hands of an angry God, as a great preacher once said, and that man is in need of redemption, a blood-bought redemption, and that that can only happen in Christ. And it also shows us, though, more than simply just those things, it also shows us what is pleasing to God, what is actually righteous in His eyes. So to this end, uh, King David makes it clear that the law is perpetual, that its morality is true forever. He says this in Psalm 111, verses 7 through 8. 
The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. You see, the law of God was not meant to pass away like grass or flesh. It was meant to endure forever. And it must endure forever, for the law is the foundation of Christ's kingdom and of his gospel. It is the apostles and the prophets who are, after all, the foundation of Christ's church. Now, um, so, so what does Jesus say of the one who does and teaches against the law? Uh, you know, I just feel a real burden that I need to pray real briefly to, uh, to I don't know what it is, I just feel the need to invite him again to, to speak with us. Uh, so let me just pray really briefly. Heavenly Father, uh, would you just uh, make these truths clear to us? Help us not to, to harden our hearts to your word, but open our hearts and speak clearly to your people who are eager to see and to do what is pleasing to you, to teach what is pleasing to you. Open our hearts, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, so, um, <clears throat> so look at verse 19. <clears throat> Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What a burden for me here as a teacher. What a burden. It's got a, there is a promise here and there is a warning here. Um, But Jesus makes it clear that in his kingdom, the law will be taught and obeyed, elevated, not diminished. In this verse, there is both a warning and a promise, a warning to the one who would diminish God's law, and a promise to the one who would practice and teach it. To the one who diminishes it, least in the kingdom. To the one who teaches and practices it, greatest. That's a, quite a bit of difference right there. Now Jesus, he uses this word relaxes, in reference to those who would diminish it, which sounds nice right first, relaxes. I like relaxation. But what he says is whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, and then he gives that threat. Now, the Greek word there for relaxes, we all know it. It's luo, right? I should have asked you to say it. You all would have known it. Now, the Greek word is luo, and that means to loosen. And it has the picture with it of loosening an animal of its yoke, like an oxen would have a yoke with it. Now, uh, it also is the same word that John the Baptist used when he said that he was not worthy to loosen the straps of Jesus's sandal. So, in other words, it is not the yoke of the law that my kingdom loosens. Not Aaron's, Jesus's, by the way. Um, now, there are other yokes that Christ loosens. Because you may be thinking of another passage that talks about yokes, not egg yokes, but these same yokes we're talking about, and where Jesus says uh, that he gives a yoke that is easier. And I'm going to take off, take off your yoke that you had. Now, a lot of people associate that yoke with the law, right? But if, if what he's saying here is true, then that can't be the interpretation of that. Uh, the fact is that that yoke he's talking about is the rabbinic teachings, the legalism of the Pharisees, the interpretation of the religious leaders of the law, the corruption of the law, right? Now, that corruption of the law was difficult, hard, impossible, right? Um, but what he gives us is a, is a law that also has redemption freedom from the guilt of sin. Um, it is not a perfection that I have to perform, uh, but is given to me. So, now some, um, <clears throat> so th- now there are a lot of things in the law that you may be thinking, well, we don't practice all the things in the law, right? Practice and teach them all. Aren't there a lot of things that we don't practice, right? So, who here sacrifices lambs? How about bulls? 
Oh, we have one in the back. So that's a little bull. No, I'm kidding. Sacrificing some kind of bull here. But um, so who here gets to God through a priest? If you're Roman Catholic, you might, but not here. Um, so what about those laws? Sacrifice this cow. Have that high priest do it, right? Um, well, we don't have a lot of time to get into the nitty-gritty of it, but um, you know, I've already kind of explained a little bit. The whole point is that Christ is the fulfillment of these laws. That's why you don't have that stuff anymore, because Christ is the perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest. And so that sacrifice is forever made perfectly. And not only that, but we practice sacrifice by sacrificing our own bodies, as the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 12. And you don't have a priesthood where you have a perfect priest and where you have a nation of priests, as the Apostle Peter says. I'm saying a lot of P words, am I not? Anyway, um, and that's exactly what the kingdom of God is. It's a nation of priests. It has a perpetual priesthood. <laughs> There's the peace again. <laughs> What's going on here? Um, and, and all this perfect sacrifices. Um, I don't know what's going on. But <clears throat> so, all right, enough of that. That's a ceremonial, sacrificial law. But what about these moral laws? Um, you know, the question might be, does doing these moral things make me righteous in the eyes of God, right? I I thought that in the New Testament we talked about by faith in Christ I am made righteous, not by moral works of the law. So are we saying that we still have to do righteous things to be accepted by God? Uh, No. Uh, In fact, no one was ever justified by works of the law. You know, it's kind of, you kind of presented a wrong idea, folks. What are you doing? The, the uh, idea is that you were never, no one was ever justified by the law. That was never the function of the law. As the Apostle Paul points out in Galatians 3, right? No one was ever made perfect by the works of the law. In fact, 413 years before the law was ever given, someone was made perfect and accredited righteousness by what? By the works of the law or by what? Faith, by faith, Abraham believed God, his promise, and it was counted to him. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. So we're not talking about being justified in God's eyes by works of the law. Jesus has fulfilled the law's righteous demand, and people are credited his righteousness as a gift by faith. So And not only that, but it goes a little bit further. Sometimes we stop there. As the Apostle Paul pointed out, Christ has given us the Holy Spirit to fulfill and do righteousness in us, again by faith. As Romans 8, 4 points out, that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's actually an experience of doing righteousness in the Christian life empowered by the Holy Spirit. There can be no other way, but it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So yes, you actually should and must do righteousness. It is not what makes you righteous in the eyes of God, but it is empowered as you believe in Him by the Holy Spirit. So uh, a lot of words there. Hopefully uh, it's getting through. By the Holy power of the Holy Spirit, it'll go through to you. and yet, and yet, even though we know that this moral law um, is not totally attainable in our own deeds, uh, Jesus is still saying here that you must do and teach the law, uh, which makes sense with the Holy Spirit. But you know, this goes against what a lot of a lot of us do with Christianity. A lot of us want to kind of ignore that side of things and say, instead, our our whole preaching ministry becomes, you're righteous, and you're righteous, and you're righteous. Remember your righteousness. I just want to remind you that you're righteous. Instead of actually teaching people to do righteousness, you become an Oprah Oprah Winfrey of righteousness. Now, uh, so uh, if you have a problem with that, by the way, sorry, uh, but Jesus said it. Take your attitude up with him. So now... um, So to summarize that, the law is to be done and taught in the kingdom, elevated, not diminished. 
So what does Jesus say next? Now, I know at this point you're thinking, we're only two verses in, and it's like, how long have we been going? Now, don't worry, we're actually halfway through the sermon. This is the halfway point, if I remember right. Uh, so uh, we're going to go blazing through. This was just to set up a lot of ideas to help us understand what Jesus is saying here. Why is he talking about these different laws? Uh, so as long as I don't continue to talk about explaining it, then we will be able to get through it. So, uh, so go to verse 20. <clears throat> uh, Jesus says this, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now think about how this, may, this must have been pretty shocking to the ears of the Jews who were hearing this. Uh, not just because it was scandalous, it was that too. But because the scribes and Pharisees looked so righteous, they looked good. Uh, what did Jesus mean by this then? Well, we know, first of all, they weren't grossly immoral people, these Pharisees. They weren't known for their unrighteousness like the prostitutes and the tax collectors in Jesus' time. But looking at them from the outside, they looked like the most righteous Christians that you've ever met. They looked like the best Christians you've ever met. Here's a fact, they tithed everything. They didn't just tithe their salary. I mean, they even tithed their herbs, okay? They tithed their mint and their cumin, uh, the first fruits from their gardens. Talk about a commitment to tithing. Uh, They had unparalleled knowledge of God's Word. They knew the Old Testament like the back of their hands, and they could quote it to you at the drop of a dime. They had evangelistic fervor. They would go across the world if they could only make a single proselyte, but they would only manage to make that person twice a child of hell as themselves. Now, these these criticisms aren't just my own. They're from Matthew 23, in case you didn't recognize it, um, that Jesus lists the woes of the Pharisees. So for all their tithing, all their knowledge of the word, all their evangelistic fervor, sounds like a good evangelical Christian, right? They had this one verdict from the Lord and judge of all, guilty. Jesus, he saw through their shows of righteousness and knew that they were dead man's bones on the inside. So how could people who look so good be so wrong? Right? How could people who seem so close to God be so far from his heart? And does that not scare you that we could be sitting here in this room seeming like we're so close to God, but so far from him? That's a holy fear of God. The problem was that they had altered, this is what I boiled it down to, I think, that they had altered the scriptures to fit their own shortcomings because they were legalists. That that is exactly what legalists do. They look at the law of God and wishing to justify themselves by their works, they make the law earthly. They make the law attainable, no longer a heavenly thing, and they make the righteousness of God human. Your righteousness, however, must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Uh, It must not be merely show, it must go down to your soul. In Christ's kingdom, righteousness must be authentic. Righteousness must not be merely external, but also internal. So, what follows in the rest of this passage is Jesus' interpretation of the law. It's the only place that we actually see him giving a real deep, meaty interpretation of the law. And he gives it up and against the interpretation of the Pharisees. There's actually a conflict going on here. He's saying that their interpretation is wrong, okay? It doesn't go far enough in the righteousness of God. This is the right interpretation. And to that end, he lists six different teachings of the law. And we're going to look briefly at three of them, the other three next week. And we'll see just how differently Jesus applies these laws. So let's look at each one of these uh, briefly. 
And note first, I just want to give a little side, little side note for you. Uh, note that each of these three laws, it really makes it clear that love for our neighbors is pretty core to Christ's kingdom. And that makes sense because you summar- Jesus summarized the laws, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So it makes sense that his kingdom would be defined by love for others, but not simply a love for others that is external, but that goes down deep to the soul. So look at the first one in verse 21. Uh, It says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus makes it clear that in his kingdom, it's not enough to just not murder someone. Right? That's not exactly the height of righteousness. Like, high five, you didn't kill someone today. You know? But here's what, this is what legalists do. They take the law and they say, well, am I righteous? Well, I've never killed anyone. I mean, have you ever asked someone, are you, do you think you're a good person? And they say, well, I've never killed anyone. Um, well, that's, that's great. That's uh, about as shallow of a definition of righteousness as you can find, though, unfortunately. And it doesn't meet the righteous requirement of the law. And not only that, but the very next moment, and here's what Jesus is pointing out, that very same person's hypocrisy is exposed because they murmur murder and they speak slaughter. They say, I've never killed anyone, but then the next moment they slam their brakes and they scream at the guy who cut you off, you idiot, what the F are you doing? Right? Am I the only one who's done that? I mean, who's tempted to that? I've never done it. Um, there's my worst times I've been in the car, I'll tell you what. That's when I need Jesus the most. I know all the time. But anyway, so you may not have killed the guy, right? Yay, good. But that doesn't mean that you've proved yourself righteous. The righteousness of God that enters the kingdom of heaven goes far, far deeper. Do you see it? That You don't kill anyone, but you're full of hatred, of enmity, of malice, of bitterness. You didn't hit anyone, but your mouth is full of violence. And true righteousness in Christ's kingdom is not steered by contempt, and it is not misplaced hatred. So you have also heard it said in our culture as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, it's fine. It's one of the, uh, the epithets, uh, is that the right word? Epithets of our culture. Uh, one of the moral laws, that's the righteous tradition of our secular culture. And the Lord is telling us today clearly, no, that's not enough. Not in my kingdom. It's not enough. So look at verse 27. It says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Not even with lustful fantasy, with lustful intent. The intent to lust. Wow. In Christ's kingdom, it's not enough to abstain from adultery or fornication. A legalist would say, well, at least I didn't cheat on my wife. What else do legalists say, right? At least I didn't force myself on anyone. At least I'm not a rapist. What else do they say? Well, at least I'm not gay. Real talk, right? Now we're getting real. It's pretty awkward. But... A legalist will pat themselves on the back for these achievements one moment, and then the next, indulge themselves in lustful passions, taking every lustful thought, every fantasy, looking at graphic images. But what you fail to understand in all that, even though you just patted yourself on the back for not cheating on your wife, is that you've fallen short, woefully short of God's righteousness. You may be clean on the outside, 
but on the inside you are full of dead men's bones, full of greed and self-indulgence. So, you know, our, our culture's version of this is have sex with anyone and everyone as long as they are consenting. That is the golden rule. They say, at least we're not rapists. At least we're not pedophiles. Uh, but just because you're not a rapist doesn't mean you have achieved the righteousness of God. And our Christian cultures, I already kind of am talking about it. It's a little bit longer than that, right? It's a lot longer uh, if you're in some circles. But uh, they'll say things like, as long as you're a virgin, as long as you're straight, as long as you're not cheating on your wife, as long as you're not looking at pornography, as long as you're not masturbating, then you're basically fine. You're basically righteous. And yet, after we congratulate ourselves for not having done that list of things, we indulge ourselves, going so far as we can the fantasies of our mind, indulging ourselves with every lust that we can, going as far as we can. And we, we fan the flames with things like Instagram or Facebook or YouTube or Netflix or TikTok or Vine as it was in my day, or just a simple walk down Church Street or the beach. So that is not the righteousness of God. You can't simply just go to these lists, go to this list and say, oh, I'm righteous. The righteousness of God is deeper than that. It is pure down to the heart. It is pure through to the mind. It leaves a lot of room for boasting out. There's not much room for boasting in, in our faith, is there? Not much room for chastising others for their sin that you just don't happen to have. So look at verse 31. Uh, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So you see, the law allowed for divorce, but Jesus was making the point that just because it's permissible doesn't mean that you're righteous. People were getting divorced, not for sexual immorality, but because they had lost their pleasure in their spouse. Does that sound familiar to anybody, like our culture? You fall out of love with someone, and you have the legal right to divorce that person. But that does not mean that it is righteous in God's eyes. That is not the righteousness of God's kingdom. That is not being defined by love that fulfills the law. And that's the kind of love that Jesus demands in his kingdom. So to sum up, righteousness in Christ's kingdom, it's not shallow. It's not shallow at all. It's deep. And it's not merely external. It's also internal. But Jesus didn't simply decry shallow righteousness in his kingdom in contrast to a legalistic lifestyle uh, following the letter of the law. Jesus prescribed a radical pursuit of righteousness. You see, in Christ's kingdom, when Jesus calls us to go deep in righteousness, he calls us to take radical measures. And you see that in each of these um, in each one, after he corrects the corrupting tradition about the law, he then prescribes a radical measure to pursue righteousness. So his first prescription is found in verses 23 through 26. He says, don't just not murder people, but go further than that. Radically pursue reconciliation. If your brother has something against you, Stop what you're doing, find them, and be reconciled to them. Don't allow anger and hatred to thrive in Christ's kingdom. Now, I don't think, by the way, that he's mentioning making offerings at the altar and interrupting that to, to make the point that you can't worship if you're not reconciled. I think he's simply stressing that the urgency of this, that even if you're in the middle of one of the most important things you could possibly be doing, worshiping God, you should be willing to interrupt that. Get up immediately, go and be reconciled to your brother. Don't hesitate in the radical pursuit 
of reconciliation. Come to terms quickly with them and don't allow hatred continual existence in Christ's kingdom. So his second prescription for a radical pursuit of righteousness is in verses 29 through 30. He says, don't just not commit adultery, but don't even lust. And then he prescribes a radical pursuit of sexual purity. He says, if your eyes offend you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Now, before you go and start gouging your eyes out, he's not being literal. He's just stressing the necessity of sexual purity in his kingdom. Now, if the Lord would say that you should pluck out your eye or cut off your arm, uh, do you think that he might also suggest maybe some more radical measures or methods? You know, like throwing out your phone or getting rid of your laptop or deleting your Facebook. I know, maybe it's a little bit too radical for this crowd. I mean, I, I know the fact is that we just can't live without those things. Just forget I said anything. But if those things cause you to stumble towards sin away from practicing righteousness, then just maybe it's actually better for you to not have them. Now, you may genuinely think that you need those things. Uh, you probably also think you need your eyes and your arms, right? The fact is that you can get on just fine without those things. The truth is, let me tell you something that nobody's ever going to tell you. They're luxuries, not essentials, all right? You can survive without your phone. So now, at the end of the sermon, I'm going to ask everybody to put their phone in that, and we're going to burn all of our phones. <laughs> a phone burning. Um, no, it's, uh, the fact is, it is better. I mean, even if you have to lose your job, okay, it's better for you uh, than to do that, which is not pleasing to God. But uh, I also think that there are good alternatives uh, to chucking your laptop. Uh, you can use site-blocking software or accountability software. Um, I use BlockSite to block YouTube and Netflix, which are two of my greatest weaknesses in life. Um, I just, I, I'm like a heroin addict. I don't know what it is. Just videos, they just suck me in. I cannot get out. I cannot escape. Jenna has seen it, and she's mourned. She's like, get off the YouTube. Um, so I, I, I gave, I can't not get on those things without Jenna typing in the password. Um, and there's a reason for that. I cannot control myself. Um, now, others use accountability software like Covenant Eyes, um, which blocks sites and apps too, but it also sends a report to your accountability partner of everything that you've been looking at. So uh, pretty intense. And I, I found that it is very helpful when you have that accountability in your life. So... His third prescription, Christ prescribes a radical pursuit of a lifelong commitment to one spouse. And what a radical idea, right? Um, he says, if you divorce your wife for any other reason than sexual immorality, you are making her commit adultery. And he even goes so far as to say that whoever marries a, divor a divorced woman is committing sexual immorality. You see, in Christ's kingdom, commitment is queen. I could have said king, but, you know, I want to be equal here. But, um, so, now before I conclude this, I simply want to make this abundantly clear um, that Jesus did not die on the cross so that you would earn your way with him by works of the law, okay? If I didn't make that abundantly clear enough before, um, he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law and became a sacrifice for us. It is by faith in Christ that we are considered righteous. The law, instead, it shows us what is pleasing to God. Now, that, that leads to a pertinent question. Uh, have you been trusting in the law to save you? Right? Have you been trusting in your own works, in your own deeds, in your own, the checklist of, oh, I didn't do that, I didn't do that? Have you been thinking that you can be righteous in God's eyes if you just work hard enough? 
Hopefully you realize it's too late at this point. You're already a sinner, okay? Um, Hopefully Jesus' exposition of the law has helped you see that that is impossible. Uh, Even if you were to meet the basic requirements of of the way that they have debased the law and made it attainable, you would not be righteous in God's eyes. Righteousness is constant. It never mixes with sin. It is not merely external. It is internal. It is not merely shallow. It goes deep down to the soul. And righteousness, if it's deep, it's a radical, radical pursuit. So forsake trusting in your ability. I just encourage you to forsake trusting in your ability to be righteous enough. Trust in Christ and His righteousness. Pursue authentic righteousness by the power of His Holy Spirit. It is from faith to faith. Trust in Him for that help. And now on the other hand though, are you, did you go the opposite way? Instead of trusting so much in your works and in the works of the law, did you ignore the law? Did you forget it existed, that it's a thing? Have you sidestepped doing righteousness in your life? Have you excused your lifestyle of sin with the gospel of grace? Have you excused evil thoughts and evil speech? Perhaps you've even gone so far as to teach others to do this, that it's okay that they live sinfully or think sinfully or speak sinfully. Well, Christ says that that person is the least in his kingdom. So I encourage you to change your ways. Just as Paul said, if we would judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So the law is useful in the kingdom of God to show us our sinful, uh, our sinfulness, to show us our need for redemption and the cross, and also to show us what is pleasing to God. Let us press on, New King Church, to do what is pleasing to the Lord. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Spirit teaching us. Thank you so much for your law, which is righteous and good and true. We just ask for forgiveness for the ways that we have diminished your law, and not elevated. We have made it look like it's something unclean, something that's not right, something unholy, something to apologize for. Forgive us, Lord, and lead us into repentance. Let us be people who love and champion your righteous law and love and champion the work of Jesus Christ. So God, do this among us. Let us be teachers and doers of your law. Give us grace for the ways that we fail. Let us remember the righteousness that we have in Christ in those moments. Be with us now as we worship, Lord. Fill our hearts with worship and delight in you and in your word and in your gospel. And I pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.